0: Good afternoon, church. It's time to transition back and find our seats so that we can give our attention to the Word of God together. It is good. It is good to be worshiping with you today. Uh, I was tempted just to say, hey, let's call it off and bring the, the worship team back up because that was was a blessing to my soul this afternoon. Thank you so much for serving us, worship team. Uh, We recently started, just last week, we started a new series on a small subset of the book of Psalms. Uh, These Psalms are known as Songs of Confidence, songs of confidence and I'm excited to meditate with you together both today and for the next couple of weeks. I can't think of anything more encouraging for us to do as a church than spend some time in those specific psalms uh, whose point is to encourage us. Uh, There's nothing like the psalms for knowing how to reach down into the the nooks and crannies of our soul that maybe are unattended, maybe have not gotten the amount of attention that they need and can bring renewal so this afternoon we're going to turn our attention to psalm 23 uh, probably one of the best known psalms in the whole psalter and it's going to be a joy to think together about it today so please turn in your bible or on your smart device to psalm 23 and let's read it together the lord Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, would you please send your Holy Spirit... uh, Many of us have probably read this psalm many, many, many times, over and over again. It is a familiar psalm, and yet it does not always make its way all the way to our heart. And we know that we need you to do that. So Father, please send your spirit to apply your word to our hearts this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you have ever had this experience, but when I was six or seven years old for my birthday, I received a pair of rollerblades, very shiny new rollerblades, and they were awesome. I was the coolest kid on the block immediately. Six or seven year, there was no cooler six or seven year old than me. But here was the problem. I was so enamored with how the skates looked in their box under my window, in my room, that I never wore them. I was scared. I was scared that I would take them out and I would fall and I would scratch them up and they would be ruined. And so I would, I would just sit in my bed and I would look at them and I would feel warm fuzzies in my heart about the cool things that I could do if I was willing to put them on and, and, and go ride. And so if you're a parent, if you've ever been around children at all, you know that their feet grow like maybe every other week, you, you think, okay, i got to go buy some, some new shoes. And so it didn't take long before the first time I tried to try them on, I had already grown out of them. They were useless. They were useless to me. Now, maybe you've noticed that some gifts are like that. Some gifts, you can, you can receive the full value of the gift immediately. So a new shirt or a gift card, you don't have to do anything You don't have to practice. You can just put that shirt on and you look awesome. You can go to the store and spend your gift card. But there are some gifts that are a little bit like my rollerblades that if you don't try it out, if you don't use it, if you don't break them in and practice and get better, then you'll never receive the full value of that gift. And friends, my point is is that Psalm 23 is presenting a gift to God's church. But it's the, it's the second kind of gift. It's the kind of gift that you have to put on, that you have to take out for a spin. It, it's, it's not like a gift card. It's more like, you know, if rollerblades aren't your thing, maybe a baseball bat or a violin. You know, to get the full value of something like that, you've got to put in some time practicing it, exercising in it. You see, if you've been in church or you've been reading your Bible for more than 10 minutes, um, I bet that you have already seen that God promises his people peace. Peace is the gift that Psalm 23 wants us to walk in. Maybe you'll think of verses like Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Or maybe John 14, 27. Jesus says this to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So, Christian, if you are in Christ this afternoon, he has given you his own peace. He's told you that there's nothing else any longer in this life, in this world, that ought to cause you trouble, that ought to trouble you. Do not let yourself be troubled. But I think that's where we often trip up. You know, we know, we know in our heads that God has offered us peace. The, the Bible keeps telling us, you ought to be at peace. Don't be troubled. But nonetheless, We keep finding ourselves dominated by fear, concern, anxiety, worry. You know, though I know the truth, how many times do I find myself locked up, wasting valuable time and energy in this life, afraid? Our experience of worry, anxiety, and fear, it just, it doesn't seem to match up with God's promise. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are those of us here who have all but given up on this aspect of of the Christian life, that you're ready to kind of say, hey, Tim, thanks for bringing up Psalm 23. Thanks for talking about peace, but you don't know the environment in my heart. You don't know what that struggle feels like. I can't just turn off the light. I can't turn off the anxiety switch and choose to believe in this promise, in this gift. If that's you today, brother and sister, Psalm 23 wants to gently invite you back. Peace is possible for our souls, peace and confidence. But here's the thing, that peace is more like receiving a violin as a gift than it is a gift card. And we've got to practice it. If, it, if we're going to experience it. We might be able to summarize Psalm 23 this way. You will experience durable peace and confidence if you actively trust that Jesus is your good shepherd and your generous host. The text gives us three main points today. Point number one, life under the leadership of the good shepherd, verses one to four. Point number two, the blessings of the generous host, in verse five. And point number three, covenant confidence, in verse six. Let's dig into point number one t- together. Psalm 23 starts this way. Look down at verse one with me. The Lord is... Now stop right there. <laughs> you, don't go any further than that. Ron made a point last week that I think is worth bringing up again. When we enter I don't think it's any coincidence coincidence at all that when we enter the songs of confidence, they all start with the identity of the Lord. They don't start with you, they don't start with me. they don't say, "I am strong and capable and therefore I will do this." you know no no, the whole logic of this psalm flows right from verse one and every Every word of, voice of verse 1 is precious to us. The Lord is the sovereign God of all creation, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who designed you and breathed you into existence, spoke you into existence. David is about to tell us what he is like, and we would do well to, to listen up. Wh- whatever he is like, whatever the Lord is like, has massive implications for our life on this earth. He is the great I am. He is the one who defines our existence. And so when the psalmist starts to say, listen up, I'm going to tell you about his character. I'm going to tell you what he's like. Oh, it's going to make an impact on us if we'll hear it. The Lord is my shepherd. But don't go too fast. The Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd. This is shockingly personal. That's not the way you think of sheep, is it? Shepherds aren't shepherds to individual sheep. They're they're shepherds to a flock, they're managing a group. You see what I'm saying? For for David to think, for David to sit down and write, the Lord, the Lord is my personal shepherd. He is my shepherd friends, we cannot miss this. One of the ways that we can miss God's peace for us is by saying to ourselves something along the lines of, you know, the Lord is a shepherd. I don't know if he's a shepherd to me. I don't know if I've earned his shepherding care. The Lord's just a shepherd. If we if we depersonalize the Lord's care, if we say the Lord cares for the church, but me individually ah, i'm not sure i'm not sure if i believe that on a long hard monday afternoon he he's my shepherd oh friends he he is you know i think i think we sometimes i think the church has sometimes overreacted to the independent, me-focused culture of of the United States. And so we want to swing the pendulum back the other way and say, no, 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 you know, stop being so individual-focused. This is a community, Christianity is a community thing. And absolutely, yes and amen. When God calls you into his kingdom, he calls you into a family. But when we emphasize that, if we lose the personal, the Lord cares for you individually, then we will not walk in this gift of peace psalm 23 has in store for us now what is the lord like that's so personal to david well he's like a shepherd he's like a shepherd now uh all of you guys may just be nodding like yes yes we know. <laughs> Psalm 23, shepherd analogy, this is all very familiar, but I just want to stop you for a second. I think we have some work to do this afternoon if we're going to receive the full meaning of the shepherd metaphor. So I, I want you to raise your hand uh, if you spent your morning this morning with livestock. No, no, parents, put your hands down. Uh, that doesn't count. <laughs> um, So so I'm guessing that not many of us have a ton of experience in the sheepfold. Uh, And what that means is not just that we're city folk like we are, but it also means that we're we're ill-prepared to receive the message of Psalm 23. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 11 can help us here. It can put us off on the right foot for understanding this psalm. In Deuteronomy 11 verses 10 through 12, it says this, For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it, like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. Now, did you catch that? What's the difference? In Deuteronomy... God is telling his people, Moses is telling, God is telling his people through Moses, the land is different. You need to prepare yourself. You used to be in Egypt, and now you're going to a new land that I've set aside for you. And I think oftentimes when we think of the promised land, what we think of is like, um, we think of kind of Disneyland for vegetation. We think that, you know, flowing with with milk and honey, you know, it's just all going to be green and everything's going to be awesome. But that's not the particular point that God is making here. What he's saying is that he's making a point about a difference between Egypt and the promised land, and it has to do with water sources. That's the point. It has to do with irrigation. Now, if you just close your eyes for a second and pull up a mental image of the landscape of Egypt, I'll give you a second, you'll know that there's one big feature that dominates the landscape on the map. One big thing, the river Nile, okay? So the Nile dominates the landscape, and that is how they watered their crops. That's how they got water for their, their livestock, for the sheep, for the animals. They never had to wonder, is there going to be enough rain this summer? Because there was a, a huge, a massive river flowing right through the land, okay? Uh, the, the church administrator, Jesenia, she just went to Egypt, and I don't know if you've seen some of her pictures on social media, But when you see one of her pictures from way up high, she's panning in a video, and it's desert. It's just dry. There's no water. And then all of a sudden, the edge of the picture gets green. And you're like, what's happening? Oh, and then it it pans over more. There's the Nile. And everything around the Nile is green, full of life. So the children of Israel in Egypt did not have to worry about water. But there's something different in the land they're going to, There's no big river running through the whole land. Now, on one side, there is, but where they're going to be living, especially where David grew up, they can't rely on a river as a constant source of water. So what does the text say? The land you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven. In this new land, they're going to be fully dependent on God bringing the early and the late rain. They have to know when it's going to rain. They have to trust the Lord. The new land is specifically designed to force them to trust God. It's a land that requires trust. Now, if it doesn't rain for a whole season, the crops die. The sheep don't have any water. Now, why do I take two or three minutes to tell you what the landscape of Israel is like? It's because this is the setting that the shepherds of Israel had to deal with. They couldn't just rely on lakes and rivers for water for their sheep. What happens to the sheep if you don't have water? It dies. It dies. And so this is not a picture. Psalm 23 is not David telling us, God has been so good to me that my life is like a vacation. There's water everywhere. Things are awesome. No, no. David is saying that Even though I live in an environment that is harsh and sometimes inhospitable, the Lord is such a skillful shepherd over my soul that I can thrive even in this environment. You see, Israel was more like Southern California than it was like, say, the Southern United States, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina. What happens in the spring? What happens? You look at the hills around, everything greens up water's flowing in the streams, everybody's singing, but how about now, in August? I want you to imagine trying to keep sheep alive in LA without, without modern irrigation techniques. You would have to know your landscape. You know, I went, on a, uh, I went on a trail run just the other day up El Prieto Canyon, and you know how many miles I got back into the canyon before I found water? Three. It was completely dry for the first three miles, and then you start seeing little pools, and then you start seeing a trickle, and then there's a waterfall. Folks, the Lord is the kind of shepherd who knows where the pools are. and He can get you there. That's the point of moving the children of Israel from Egypt to the promised land. So with this perspective in mind, what exactly are the benefits of being led by a good shepherd Let's finish verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is kind of like a banner over the whole first four, vo- four verses. I shall not want. I shall have no lack. Folks, please don't let me speak that over you and have it kind of bounce off your heart or your mind today. When the Lord is your shepherd, you shall lack nothing. You will lack nothing nothing. So then he explains, well, what do you mean, David, that I'll have no lack? Well, verse 2, he's going to provide for your physical needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, these green pastures and still waters, these these are specific shepherding things. This is not just your favorite pastoral painting, okay? The green pastures, he uses a Hebrew word here that is speaking specifically of the grass that's available only in the spring on the hillsides. And then still waters, I'll bet you guys did not know, but sheep will not drink out of rushing water. They can't, they're afraid. They won't drink it. It's there, there's the river, but it's moving too fast. So shepherd, please take me to a pool, please. Okay, no, but the point of that is to say that God knows your individual needs. He knows exactly what you need, Tim, what you need, congregation. He knows if the water's running too fast for your soul right now. That ought to give us great comfort. Verse 3, he restores my soul. Let's just stop here for a moment. You know, the, the Bible talks about our soul as the most significant aspect of who we are. It's the most valuable thing about you and about me. Uh, Mark eight thirty six, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? Now if your soul is able to be renewed, then that's going to give you the ability to face the reality of this world, the fear, the strife, the brokenness, uh, with confidence and courage because you know that you have someone in your corner who can renew your soul, who can restore your soul's vitality. I think that's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians. He said, so we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart, Christian. Why? Why? Even though outwardly we are wasting away, no, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now, where does that come from? It comes right from right here in Psalm 23. The Lord is able to restore your soul. But question for you, how is your soul doing this afternoon? Take a minute, take a moment to assess, to be be brutally honest with yourself. Uh, this is the kind of world that beats down a soul. Have you ever experienced weariness? Weariness that got all the way down. That, weariness that doesn't go away when you have a good night's sleep. John Eldridge wrote a book recently called uh, Taking Your Life Back. And I think the book is really about the, the, the means that God typically uses to restore our souls. But he has this to say. We, too, live in a world that triggers our souls into vigilance far too often. The complexity of modern life is mind-boggling, the constantly changing social terrain of what's appropriate, the level of trauma we navigate in people's lives. The typical sounds of a city trigger adrenaline responses in us all day long. Thanks to the smartphone and the web, you are confronted on a daily basis with more information than any previous generation has had to deal with. And it's not just information. It's the suffering of the entire planet in minute detail served up on your daily feed. Honestly, I think most people live their daily lives along a spectrum from slightly rattled to completely fried as their normal state of being. Friends, this, this world is a place where you and I need constant renewal, constant restoration. So two thoughts before we move on to verses 4 and 5. If this applies to you, if you just heard that quote and you said, you know what, I'm somewhere in the spectrum between slightly rattled and completely fried. Just two quick encouragements for you. Brother or sister, the first step is to believe again that restoration is even possible. If, if you've been the one who honestly has been tempted to say, hey, I've tried the whole peace of God thing. It's not working for me. I've got to live with fear. I've got to live with anxiety. The first, the first step is to believe that, that soul restoration is something that God does in fact do for his children. And the second thing I want to caution you about is please be aware. I think we all, we all know this deep down, but please be aware of the difference between restoration on the one hand that goes all the way down and coping on the other hand. Do you know what I mean by coping? There, there, there are healthy and unhealthy ways to cope with the stress of this life, are there not? Some people cope through exercise. That's a healthy way to cope. But you know what? Even healthy coping mechanisms, they don't accomplish soul restoration. You can go do your favorite yoga. You can go go do your favorite run. You can do some, get in the gym. And you know what? If your soul is weary, if your soul is in need of restoration, you'll come out of the gym the same way you went in. Beware. Soul care. Restoring of souls is something that only the Lord offers to us. Now, let's look at verses 3 and 4. The, the, the end of verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, for, you, you read verse 3b. Uh, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I don't know if you're like me at all, but every time I've ever read that, I'm like, whoa, David, that's pretty bold. You're saying that God's name is on the line with how your life goes. Is that what you're, okay? Well, that might be good for King David, you know. God spoke directly to King David, but I'm not sure if I can. I'm not sure if I can pray that prayer right next to him. That that my his leadership of me, that his name is on the line. But what, but when we step back from that, think of this within the shepherding metaphor. Does anybody, if a shepherd loses a sheep? Does anybody say, sheep's fault, <laughs> that sheep that sheep was just too dumb, they couldn't do it, <laughs> they, they got off track, there was nothing I could do to save them. No, no, any shepherd worth his salt says, no, they're, they're my sheep. If I lose one of them, that's on me. Christian, that is the Lord's attitude towards you coming to the lord following the lord walking this life it was never on your own merit it was never your doing in the final analysis it was always the responsibility of the shepherd the shepherd is carrying you along the shepherd is taking responsibility for your soul the shepherd is making sure that you make it along the righteous path and notice this so so we move down into verse four such a precious verse Verse 4 is telling us that, that not only does God provide for us, but the shepherd also protects his sheep. And he protects us so effectively that we need not fear, even if we're in a dangerous situation. But what I don't want you to miss is please don't miss the connection between verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3 just told us that he's the one leading us on the right path. He is leading us on a, on a right path. And then verse 4 talks about a scary path that we're on. Okay, so who, who led you there? Do you think that the, the scary places we find ourselves in in our life, do you think that, that God fell asleep at the wheel? I was leading you on the right path, and then I took a nap, and now, oh my goodness, where is Tim today? This is not good. It's dark. It's dangerous. That's, that's not what's happening. The Lord is leading us, even when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death. If you think back to my trail run the other day uh, we've only been here for like six weeks but already on my trail runs i've already seen a bobcat and a couple of coyotes i know there's mountain lions in the area so think in august if you've got some sheep you're taking up into the canyon okay to find where the water is still actually flowing if that sheep is alone does that sheep have a chance No, I'm convinced that the mountains around LA are full of predators. Uh, I'm wondering if I need to take like, you know, pepper spray every time I run, okay? So, but if you have, if you have a good shepherd with you, then you are safe on the path that he's, in which he's leading you. Now, let's summarize. What is David telling us by comparing God to a shepherd? Well, he's telling us that the Lord provides comprehensive care for his people. Comprehensive care. He provides for our physical needs. He provides for our spiritual needs. He provides leadership and direction and protection, even in dangerous circumstances. And he does this so skillfully that we can rest. We can lie down in the green pasture and we cannot be afraid in the dark valley. Uh, he's so skillful that in the inhospitable environment of this world, We can have peace. And now the metaphor is going to change. So you thought that Psalm 23 was only about the shepherd metaphor. But in verse 5, there's a strange turn. And this brings us to point number two, the blessings of the generous host. Let's read verse 5 together. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows so the scene has changed from a pasture to a banquet hall uh, it's changed from a shepherd who's presiding over us to a host someone who's preparing a table preparing a meal now david here is likely describing a victory feast you know he says This table, this meal, is in the presence of his enemies, and the Bible never takes enemies lightly. So if the enemies are at the meal, it can only be a victory feast. What it means is that the enemies have been conquered, and now they're being forced to watch the celebration of God's people. God's people are celebrating God's victory while the enemies are forced to watch. This is the image that David has for you and me this morning, brother and sister, Everything here speaks of triumph. Everything here speaks of joy. He says, you anoint my head with oil. And that's a symbol in the Old Testament of wealth, prosperity, happiness, honor. He says, my cup overflows. And the cup in the Old Testament is a symbol for your, your God-ordained lot in life. Your portion that's been assigned to you by the Lord. And if, if that cup is overflowing, it means you have an abundance. It means you're wealthy. It means you have no lack. If you are in Christ this afternoon, the victory banquet is being prepared for you. Your, do, you know, do you know that your enemies, who, who are your enemies? Do you have trouble reading about enemies in the book of Psalms? Perhaps our enemies are within. Is there a sin that you've been fighting year after year after year? Your enemies are on borrowed time. The enemies of the Lord, all are on borrowed time. They have received their death sentence. When Jesus took his last breath, the dragon was crushed. Sin and death were defeated. But right here in 2022, in the United States, in Southern California, it doesn't always feel like that. It feels like, it feels like the enemies are alive and well. See, we're living, we're living in the church age where the victory has been decisively won by Christ, but it hasn't been consummated yet. He hasn't brought all things to completion. You know, we have the victory now by faith, but, but not yet by sight. That's coming. Now remember what we said earlier. To experience the peace the joy, the confidence that comes from this victory, this victory feast, to experience those things that Psalm 23 wants to offer you today, we have to exercise something. We have to exercise our faith. We must practice. We must actively trust. And that means we work at trusting. We coach ourselves. We remind ourselves every day that despite our current circumstances, despite what you might see when you look around in the world today, we're headed for a victory feast the end of the story has already been written if if this psalm is going to make an impact on your life we will have to practice it we will have to rehearse it we'll have to get the violin out of its box and the the on our feet and start figuring out how to how to ride now i have a question for you as we transition to point number three i wonder if you've ever read this psalm and thought Yeah, but how do I know that all this is for me? David's using pretty personal language here. The Lord is David's shepherd, but how are you assured? Is this just, am I just giving you kind of a repackaged message of the world? Am I just saying, you know, if you believe it hard enough, it'll be true for you too. It was true for David, but let's just, you know, let's just try real hard to think that the Lord's going to treat us. Is that, is that the message of the church No, it's not. This is not just another form of self-confidence. This is not if you think it, you can make it happen, if you're dedicated enough. But what is then, what's the foundation for our confidence that any of this could be for us? Point number three is going to give us a clue. Look at verse 6 with me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, that shall pursue me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Look at this bold confidence. How can David be that confident? Do you see what he says? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Every day of my life. Do you know anything about David's life? Did every day look like a green pasture to you, in your opinion? But something was happening in David's soul that made him say, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Goodness and mercy are chasing me down. They are pursuing me every day of my life. That's David's experience, every day. And note that David doesn't just put off the good times until heaven. He doesn't say, goodness and mercy will catch up with me one day, but this life is really hard and I'm kind of sad. That's not what David said. But don't we do that as Christians sometimes? We think, you know, I've just got to endure uh, until we get to the end. When Jesus comes back, then everything's going to be awesome. But I don't know. Every day between now and then, I'm just not sure. It's going to get pretty rough. That, that is not David's attitude. David has hope for you and I that is supposed to infiltrate every single one of our days, regardless of what's going on around us. But again, how can we know that that kind of promise, that kind of confidence can be for us. Well, there's a clue in how David uses the word mercy. This Hebrew word mercy, sometimes it's translated loving kindness, sometimes it's translated steadfast love, but it's it's most closely associated with God's covenant with his people. So, maybe a good translation would be God's covenant love. God's covenant... It, Many of you would be aware that it's something like a contract between God and his people, but it's, it's more than a typical contract. It's like the ground rules for how a sinful people can approach and have a relationship with a holy God. Now, down through Israel's history, God reiterated the covenant at key moments. Key moments, God showed up to Abraham, to Moses, and to David, and made extravagant promises about how he would treat them. This covenant love, this promise, this covenant promise was the ground of David's confidence. Now the the Old Testament history ends with everyone holding their breath. The Old Testament history ends with the, the promise of a future king that would be in David's line, that would fulfill the covenant, that would inaugurate a new age, that's what we find when the book of matthew opens on the life of jesus a thousand years after king david jesus showed up on the scene the king but we didn't recognize him because he was humble and he was poor but then he started saying some strange things he started talking about shepherds and sheep he started talking about living water He started talking about wedding banquets. John 10, uh, Jesus said this. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Psalm 23 isn't about David, and it isn't about sheep either. Psalm 23 is about King Jesus, the Good Shepherd. It's about King Jesus, the bridegroom, who right now is preparing a marriage supper, who's preparing a feast where all of your enemies are conquered. That's where you're invited. If you're in Christ today, that's where you are going. So, how? Let's recap. How can you experience the durable peace and joyful confidence that David seems to have in Psalm 23? Well, you have to enter through the door. There's no other way. Jesus said that he is the door. He said that his sheep recognize his voice and they follow him. You see, to know that Psalm, for, for Psalm 23 to apply to you You must exercise faith in Christ in order to be counted as part of his flock. You must actively, daily remember that he is like a skillful shepherd to you. He's like a generous, rich host planning your wedding feast. I just have two points of application that I'd like you to consider as we close today. One, for those of you that may not know Uh, Jesus as your shepherd yet. And one for those of you who have been following his voice maybe for years. First, if you're honest with yourself and you say, you know, I don't know if I've entered through the door. I've been around spiritual things. I've been around the church. But I don't know if I recognize his voice. I don't know if I've really put all my faith and hope And Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. There is nothing that you can do to earn your way into that sheepfold. You can't earn Jesus' protection, his shepherding care. There's only one way in. You turn your back on your own way of living. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ's sacrificial death on your behalf. And follow him with all your heart but brother or sister my friend if once you do all the promises all the blessings of the covenant belong to you all the care of psalm 23 is yours i hope that that you hear his voice calling to you even now and now for you the believer one encouragement for you, and it seems a little bit paradoxical. I want to tell you to practice rest. I want you to practice. I want you to work hard and diligently at rest. This might seem like a paradox, but this is just the kind of paradox that the Bible gives us, that we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Your effort to trust God's new covenant promises of peace, care, guidance, protection, your effort is part of the recipe. You need to practice rest. But you know what? We're humans, and we tend to get things wrong pretty easy. And if we're not remembered, if we're not reminded, we're just going to keep getting it wrong. So, depending on your personality, I bet you either gravitate towards the practice or towards the rest. You you don't. Not many people keep them together. You either want to kind of chill on the couch with a bag of potato chips and say, "Hey, Jesus got this. Good Shepherd, right?" Or you want to you want to put your nose to the grindstone. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to renew my soul, myself. Who needs a good shepherd? No, no, they're both wrong. They're both ways that we try to save ourselves. You need to practice rest. Are you fearful? You need to remind yourself. You need to practice, exercise the muscle of faith that you have a shepherd who's able to protect you in the dark valley. Are you anxious about money? Well, you need to exercise the muscle of your faith that you have a shepherd who knows where the grass is. And you know what? If he doesn't want you to find the green grass, you're not going to find it anyway. So you can give up that that worry about money and provision. Are you tempted to hopelessness or despair? Oh, you need to exercise that muscle of faith, believing that the king has defeated your enemies and you have nothing but a victory celebration awaiting you on the last day. Friends, pick up Psalm 23 and start practicing. That's where the gift of peace comes. In just a few minutes, we're going to participate in communion. We practice open communion here at Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena. And what that means is you don't have to be a member of the church in order to participate in communion. But you do have to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You have to have placed your faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus you know, if you aren't a follower of the Lord Jesus, it's just, it's just juice. It's just juice and bread. But if you are, communion is doing two things for us this morning. It's pointing us back. The juice represents the blood of Christ shed for you, shed for, for us all, for our sins. The bread represents his broken body. But you know what? This table is also pointing us forward There is a victory feast in store for you, if you're one of the Lord's sheep. And every time you sit down at the Lord's table, it's a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of that future feast that is as certain right now, it is as certain as the sun rising tomorrow morning. And that ought to do something in our souls have you stopped? When was the last time you stopped to consider the tremendous benefits of having a seat at this table or this table? When you come today, if you are truly in Christ, this table I means Psalm 23 is for you. I hope you will come to the table this afternoon with a sense of deep peace and rest. You don't have to strive anymore. The Lord Jesus is your shepherd. I'm going to pray for us and then you can come to the table when you're ready. Um, Please be aware of those around you. We don't want anyone to have to celebrate communion alone. Communion is about fellowship with God and with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, After we, as we conclude receiving communion, Uh, the worship team is going to come back up and close us in a song. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for your care, your guidance, your provision, your strength. So thankful that you are telling us, you are right here in Psalm 23 telling us, you have nothing to fear. Don't let anything trouble your soul. Lord, I pray that as we go out today uh, to the potluck dinner and fellowship and to the rest of our week, that the peace of God will reign in our hearts, Lord. And Lord, as we prepare ourselves to participate in communion this morning, would you give us a heightened sense of just how amazing it is that we're invited to your table, we're invited to your house that you will care for every one of our needs. Lord, I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.